Father, we thank you again that you've called us together, that you've uh, brought us out here to, to study your word, open the scriptures and read what it says about you, particularly about your, your form in the Trinity, that you do exist as, as, a, as one God, but yet that God is in three persons, three persons that are, are equally perfect, equally eternal, equally powerful, equally holy, who all share of one essence, uh, the Father, Son, and the Spirit, and that there is a, a true a father-son relationship between you and the second person that we call the son and we pray that you give us insight and help tonight as we look at what the relationship is between you the son and the spirit and what his relationship is to us and how he works within us and how he helps his father and uh, the fact that he truly is God of God and uh, Lord of Lords as you and the son are themselves so we thank you for the spirit ask you open our hearts and minds to see the truths about him, to appreciate him, and to learn to, to rely on him, Father, and lean upon him in faith as the scripture dictates we should. We thank you for these things. In Christ's name, amen. All right, last week we had a rather deep uh, theological discussion about the uh, eternal begottenness of Christ, of the Son. And I, I did, do need to make one correction last week. I, I did make a comment that the, uh, I'm not sure if these exact words I used because it wasn't taped, fortunately. But uh, I made a, a comment. It sounded like I was saying that the the Son and the Father are eternally submissive, or the Son is eternally submissive to the Father, and, and that certainly is not true. I don't believe that. I believe that there's a uh, a temporary submission uh, that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit undergo uh, for us for salvation. But in and of themselves, there, there's no submission. They're all equal in every possible way. So uh, if I said that and you kind of caught that, oh, Jeff's a submissionist. No, I'm not. I'm just not a very careful speaker is what I am. So uh, just to, to clarify that. And thankfully, I won't have to uh, go back and erase it like I've had to do in my sermons and lessons many times. Not so much here, but other places. Um, okay, now, again, we talked about the eternal generation of the Son. And just a comment. Uh, before we move on to the spirit of, about deep theological discussion, because it was rather deep. Most of you probably never heard it before. Uh, some of you may have been bored, others may have been interested, but uh, most people would call it very impractical, not, not very practical theology. And uh, the question is, is there such thing as impractical theology? I remember at seminary, we had a group of rather uh, theologically minded students who would get together at night in a, uh, one of the rooms in a dorm and uh, have discussions, these deep discussions about some of the things that we learn. And there are always some of the either Christian ed people or the Christian counseling people would come by and kind of shake their finger at us and say, how is that kind of stuff going to help you in a counseling situation? Let's say you know, something out of a Kenny Rogers song, a uh, husband leaves a wife with a bunch of children and a crop in the field and that man comes to you for counseling. How's that stuff going to help them? And uh, most of the men would just kind of lower their heads in shame and kind of admit some kind of defeat. But uh, is that the case? Should we be ashamed to study, on occasion, uh, deep theology? And um, I don't think so. I think that a true theology, a uh, true practice, what we call orthopraxy, always flows out of orthodoxy. If you have an orthodox church, that means you're automatically going to uh, have the right practice, but your chances of having it are greater than if you have bad theology than having a, uh, a good practice or good orthopraxy. Uh, so it's never useless uh, to have a proper, to form or discuss proper and accurate theology because if used properly, it will allow accurate, accurate and proper orthopraxy or the proper practice of the Christian faith. That is to say, um, 
Well, sometimes the practical part of study theology uh, is just simply to lose ourselves in the praise of God. It always doesn't have to have some kind of uh, application in a counseling situation or in a marriage situation or in raising your children. Sometimes the purpose of theology is just to cause us to praise God, to realize who he is and how great he is and how insignificant we are. And often that can humble us and shame us at the same time make us glorify and magnify God. And this is what a lot of these men who, who came up with these ideas of, of begottenness, we'll see procession of the Spirit today, that's what theology was mainly for them. It was for them to come to a greater knowledge and appreciation of God that would lead to uh, the proper praise and acclamation of who God, or a proclamation of who God actually is. And uh, we've kind of lost that idea of theology. It's just for practical purposes, and it is for that. It's definitely for that, but there's another aspect of it where uh, many times it just makes us praise God. Uh, when, when these people would come in and kind of point their finger at us, I'd always ask them, well, you know, how do you apply Romans 11 to a counting situation? Now, Romans 11, God is basically uh, rebuking the Gentiles, telling them, uh, reminding them of what God did with the Jews, how he took them, uh, the natural olive branch, and broke them off the tree, snapped them from the root, and put you, a wild olive branch, on. Well, that's pretty good news. Well, then he warns them, says, don't you become arrogant, because God can snap you off and put another branch back on. Remember, you're a, a wild olive branch, and they're a natural olive branch. So if he snapped that natural one off, he can certainly snap a wild one off. And he's warning them about arrogance. He tells them that God has basically shut up the Jews in disobedience so that he might show mercy to you. And don't let that go to your head. Now, how do you apply that in a counseling situation to a man whose wife just left him? Well, it's kind of difficult. How does Paul apply it? Just with a doxology, at the end of all this, after stating this, he says, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. That's Paul's response to this deep, deep theology. Just praising God for who he is. Who can understand the things of God? That's Paul's application. And in the past, that was one of the main tasks of theology, to make us praise God and honor him and glorify him. Uh, Paul doesn't derive a handful of, of helpful counseling tips from his teaching. Instead, he's driven to praise and honor of God and his works. Now, uh, deep theological reflection and study is one of the most practical things we can do. Uh, anybody, here, anybody here who's actually in the counseling program with Dan? I don't see anybody. Well, if they were here, they would probably admit that they're doing a lot of deep theology. You have somebody come in and, and pour his heart out about some sin that he's entrapped in, you have to have a pretty deep understanding of theology to actually help that man. You have to know something about anthropology, who that man is as an image bearer of God. You have to know something about sin, about harmodiology, of what sin does between God and man. You have to know uh, something about the role of the spirit in that man's life, how we 
can expect the Spirit to assist him. You have to know something about the means of grace that God gives us to help us overcome and mortify sin. You have to know something about God's holiness, so there needs to be something about the character of God that that counselor understands. So the idea of deep theology not being practical in what we would call one of the most practical situations there is, a counseling situation, it's very, very much needed. In fact, I would say that the deeper that counselor is rooted in the deep theology of who God is, of what sin is, of who man is, the greater he's going to be in counseling that person. So never apologize for doing deep theology or studying it or, or meditating upon it. Yes, we need practical theology. I, I, I think we'd lose our church if Justin got up and preached five sermons on the begottenness of the Son of God. We're not calling for that. Just occasionally, deep theology is good for the soul, it's good for the church, and it's good for God's people. So, any questions or comments before we move on to the Holy Spirit? One of my favorite topics is the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're interested in books, uh, the best book that I know of, and there's a lot of them out there in the spirit, is this one here. In fact, this man just died recently, Gordon Fee. Uh, I have it home, but it's in storage right now. I couldn't get it out. It's called God's Empowering Presence, and it's subtitled The Holy Spirit in the Letters of Paul. And what he does here is in 1,200 pages, takes every time Paul even remotely mentions the word spirit and does a very detailed exegesis of that passage and when he's done he develops a, a deep theology, spirit, a theology of the spirit from Paul and it's just an amazing book. I remember when I read this Jeffrey was a little baby and was uh, had some kind of thing where he was always crying and he had this little um, thing that we could bounce him in a little like a thing bent backwards, we would put him in and bounce him, that would quiet him down. And I tied a string to it, and I'd sit there in a chair reading, and I'd pull that little thing to rock him back to sleep while I was reading this book. It's just an absolutely fascinating book. And if 1,200 pages is too much for you, then fortunately it was so popular that people uh, clamored for him to write a smaller book. And so he did. He took it down and wrote a book called uh, Paul the Spirit and the people of God. So it's a, a sort of a, a summary without all the exegetical detail of what he wrote in the larger book. And it's a very, very good book. So if you want a really good uh, understanding of Paul and the Spirit, uh, this book right here by Gordon Fee is excellent. Has a couple weird things. He thinks Romans 8 is talking about tongues. There's a couple odd things. He is a charismatic, we expect that, but uh, a deep, deep theology of the Spirit this man uh, has and presents in his book. All right. Okay, so we're going to look at three things today with regard to the Holy Spirit. We're going to look at, um, is he God? Is he equal to the Father and Son? We're going to look at uh, his outer works, the opera ad extra that he does. Uh, then we're going to look very briefly at the opera ad intro, the works that he does among the members of the Trinity. Now, when we look at deity, I think I mentioned this before, we look for two things and trying to see if a being or an entity is God, we look for two different things to approve that. Remember what they are? His attributes and what else? His works. Only don't, there are certain works only God himself can do. And if we attribute those works to something, some entity or being, we assume that that is God himself doing it. We saw this with Christ, the fact that he was the creator of all things, show that he is actually God himself. The fact that he is uh, given certain attributes uh, that are only possessed by deity shows that he is God himself. And we can do the same thing not as definitely as we can with Christ, or I would say numerously, but we can do it with the Spirit enough to show that he is, or is, it is legitimate theologically, 
They say that he is God equal to the Father and Son. Uh, what are, anybody know what some of these are? What would we, some of these attributes of the Spirit that would be related to deity, identify him as God? Is he ever called eternal? Yeah. Uh, I think, what is it? Um, Hebrews 9, 14, I believe it is. Calls him the eternal Spirit. Uh, so the Spirit is eternal. The eternal Spirit of God offered himself without blemish uh, to God to cleanse your conscience from the dead, from dead works to serve a living God. Um, he's given divine names and titles. Uh, he is called God in Acts 5 34. Remember, this is where uh, Sapphira and Ananias uh, lie about their land. And Peter confronts Ananias and, and says that you're, you're filled with Satan uh, and you, you lied to the Holy Spirit. You kept part of your land back and you lied to the Holy Spirit, he says. And then later in that same passage, he says, uh, you have not lied to men, but to God. Well, so who did he lie to, the Spirit or to God? It's a good instance where he probably is saying here that the Spirit himself is actually God who was lied to. You don't lie to a, per, to a, a non-entity or a power, you lie to a person. And if the, what's the big deal about lying to somebody who's not God? He lied uh, to the Spirit and he lied to God, which would indicate that God and the Spirit, or that the Spirit is actually God. Uh, there are instances in the Old Testament where uh, God is said to be speaking, but when you look at the New Testament, the authors say that it was the Holy Spirit who was speaking. Uh, Acts 28, 25, the closing chapter of Acts. Uh, Paul here is quoting from Isaiah 6, 6. He says, the Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers, saying, go to this people and say, you will keep hearing, but will not understand. You will keep seeking, but will not perceive. Keep seeing, but will not perceive. Uh, the point here is that, well, who said it? God or the Holy Spirit? In the Old Testament, it's God, it's Jehovah that's speaking, where when Paul quotes that, he attributes it to the Spirit himself who's speaking. So the, the natural conclusion there would be that it is the Spirit who's speaking, and the Spirit is God. Uh, the writer of Hebrews does the same thing. When uh, referring to the New Covenant, he quotes uh, the passage from Jeremiah in the New Covenant. Uh, it is the Spirit, he says, who testifies to this. And he goes on and quotes about the, the New Covenant. And if you read Jeremiah, who's giving a New Covenant? It's not an angel. It's not a man. It's Jehovah. It's God himself speaking there, uh, laying out the grounds and the basis for this covenant. So in two places, we have the Holy Spirit speaking, and that word is attributed to Jehovah, to God, in the Old Testament, showing that the Spirit speaks in the place of God. Uh, he is actually called Lord, and one of the most amazing passages, I, I think, in the Scripture is 2 uh, Corinthians uh, three fifteen through 18. What's going on there is, is that uh, he's taking the event in Exodus 33 where Moses receives the law. And what's happening here is Moses, uh, he goes up to receive the law, instruction from God, and then is there for a while and comes back down the mountain and then instructs the people takes what God gave him face-to-face -face and instructs the people face-to-face. -face. And him being in the presence of God uh, causes his face to glow. Somehow this, this glory was transmitted to Moses, and then he emitted that same glory before the people when he spoke. And remember what the response of the people was there. That they couldn't bear to look at Moses. They said, you need to, to cover yourself, put a veil up, so we can't, we can't bear to look at this glory that's emanating from your face. 
And so Moses put this, put this veil up over his face and would teach the people and he'd go back up to the mountain, take the veil off, receive more words from God, come back down, put the veil up, go back up. And this, this process of veiling himself and unveiling himself went on and on until he finished his teaching. And, and Paul takes that idea of the veil uh, of blinding them or blocking them from the glory of God and puts it over the heart of the Jews. And said, when the Jews hear the law today, they are blind, they have a veil over their heart that prevents them from seeing the true intent of the law. And what is the true intent of the law? Well, it is to reveal Christ. So he takes it from their faces and puts it on the Jews' heart and says they are blinded. They have this veil over them that presents them from seeing uh, the true glory. And that glory is the glory of the new covenant. And then Paul continues, he sort of sums this up. He says how the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with, I'm sorry, I, I skipped that a little bit here to, uh, where's the actual quote? Yeah, says uh, now the Lord. Now the Lord is a spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. But we all, with unveiled faces, look into a mirror at the glory of the Lord, and are being transformed into that same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. So he says, when a person turns to the Lord, when he repents and turns away and turns to the Lord, he says that veil then is taken away and it's removed. And we will see in a mirror the glory of the Lord himself. Now, who does Paul call this Lord? He says it's the Spirit. It's the Spirit, in a sense, that we see. It's the Spirit that reveals to us of this glory of the Lord. And it's the Spirit that transforms us into that same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Now, whether you understand what's going on there, it is very complicated. It's rather uh, amazing what Paul's saying here. But the Spirit here is being called the Lord. And the Spirit is the one who is taking that glory that is revealed by God and shining it in our hearts and giving us the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ. So the Spirit is the Lord we are turning to. Not only this, but the glory of the Lord is revealing to our hearts. It is the glory of the image of God that we see in the face of Jesus. He continues in chapter 4. But if our gospel is veiled, it is the veil to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. So now he takes this veil that originally was blocking the Jews from seeing God's glory in Moses' face, to blocking the Jews' heart from seeing the glory of the Old Testament, the, the Old Covenant, now this, this veil is covering the eyes of the whole world. It's blinding them to the gospel of Christ. And it says Satan is blind to these people from seeing the gospel of Christ. Again, but if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. Now, what are they blinded from seeing? Well, he continues, they're blinded so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. No longer blinds them to the glory of the new covenant or the old covenant, but it blinds them to the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So the gospel manifests the glory of Christ, the very image of God, but the world is blinded so that it cannot see what that image is. Then he concludes, but God said, light, the God who said, light shall shine out of darkness is the one who is shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. In other words, the very God who spoke in that first day of creation 
and separated light from darkness, created the light, is the one who is shown in our hearts to give us what? This knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And if we trace that back to what Paul has already said, it, it is the Spirit is the one who takes that glory and opens our eyes and shows us the glory of Christ. Again, this name here implies that he possesses uh, the deity, the idea of being Lord and possessing the glory of Christ to reveal it. Uh, the Spirit is also omniscient, 1 Corinthians 2.10. Uh, it says he searches the depths of God. Um, he knows the secret places of God's nature and person, uh, that no creature has a privilege or authority to know what creature can penetrate into the mind of God and take what he sees there and reveal it to people. Can an angel do that? Can another man peer into God's essence, the recesses of God's heart, and reveal them to the people of God? Uh, who would have the ability to do that if not God himself? So to me, this is one of the, to me, this is one of the most powerful demonstrations that the Spirit is God. Who else can do that? Who can go into God's character, into his nature, appear into his very essence and being, and, and, and take that information and then give it to other people, reveal it to other people? The Spirit, we're told, has the same access to the Father and the Son that Jesus himself possesses. Uh, the Spirit also does uh, the works only God can do. Uh, he's involved both in the work of creation and providence. Uh, Psalm 104, two, uh, 29 through 30, he says, They all wait for you uh, to give, they, the they here are the works of God, all his works. Wait for you to give them their food in due season. You give it to them. They gather it up. You open their hand, and they are satisfied with good. You hide your face. They are terrified. You take away their breath. They perish and return to dust. You send forth your spirit. They are created, and you renew the face of the ground. So the spirit, if when it's there, there's life. When God takes the spirit away, there is death and destruction. He's also the agent of regeneration. He's the one who regenerates the people of God, Titus 3.5. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we did in righteousness, but in accordance with his mercy, by washing, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he richly poured out upon us through Jesus Christ our Savior. So there's this regeneration and renewing that takes place, a washing. Uh, that's based on God's mercy, that's done by the Holy Spirit. It says, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So being an, an agent not just of a physical life, as Psalm 104 states, but the agent of our regenerative life as well. He's also the agent of the resurrection. He's the one who in the last day will raise us from the dead, Romans 8.11. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And Paul, Paul's point here is not that, that the spirit is some kind of um, badge or some kind of sign that God will look at. And, okay, this one has the sign. He has the spirit. I will now raise him from the dead. Uh, his point here is that the spirit who lives in your mortal bodies, that same spirit will be the one who will give life to your body and raise you from the dead. Paul's point, if you don't have the spirit of God dwelling in you, you will die in your sins. You will not be raised from the dead. And if you have the Spirit, you will know you have the Spirit. If you're mortifying the flesh, 
Uh, if you're walking according to the Spirit, if you are setting your mind on the things of the Spirit, that is evidence that you do indeed have the Spirit. So, so that we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death, or you are mortifying the deeds of your body, you will live for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons and daughters of God. Uh, the Spirit is, uh, another question is, uh, any questions before I move on? I'm not really stopping for questions like I wanted to, kind of just blown through this. Any questions or comments? Okay. Uh, is there a place where the Spirit's worshiped in the New Testament? Is he, we have places where Jesus is specifically said to be worshiped. There's many, many places where the Father is said to be worshipped. Is there a place in the New Testament where the Spirit is explicitly said to be worshipped, or in the Old Testament for that matter? And I, I really can't find one that stands out, that, that is very clear, as clear as the ones on the Son and the Father. And um, I don't think that takes away from his deity. I think that is part of uh, the role that he has in his world. Remember, his role is not simply to... Um, uh, the main role that he has, basically, is, is to reveal Christ. It's to show who Christ is. It's to search the depths of God and reveal those to the people of God. It's to pour out the love of God into the hearts of the people. It's to regenerate, enliven, and invigorate the people of God spiritually. It's to, to show them the greatness and glory of Christ. So he has sort of a, a secondary role that he does. And so therefore, he doesn't draw attention to himself, but points to Christ and reveals him. Uh, Christ says this, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them at this present time. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak of his own. In other words, he's not speaking what's on his mind or his heart. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take from mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. This is why I said he takes from mine and will disclose to you. So there's a pattern, sort of a chain here. Uh, the goal is to reveal the Father, and that's what Christ came to do, to reveal the Father to the people of God. And then once Christ goes... Who's going to take over that place, that role? The Spirit is. So the Spirit takes from Christ, reveals it to the people of God. Christ takes from the Father and gives it to the Spirit. So it goes from the Father to the Son to the Spirit to the people of God. There's a pattern that is established here. So his goal is not to reveal himself, but to reveal Christ. Christ is at the forefront of his work, manifesting him. Uh, J.I. Packer used a, a brilliant illustration for this, and I think his book, uh, Keeping a Step of the Spirit. And he uses a, uh, a big, gigantic cathedral at night, and, and the lights that they use to shine and brighten that cathedral. Uh, what role do the lights play? Did you ever walk, walk away from one of those cathedrals and think, boy, those lights were really nice. They're, they're beautiful lights. Did you see those? No, it's, it's the, their reflection upon the cathedral and displaying its glory is what the lights are there for. So you don't notice them. Usually they're hidden away. They're either in the ground or behind a rock or coming out of, of, a, of a shrub or a hedge. They're not there to be seen. They're there to manifest, to light up something else. And that's the role of the Spirit. He's there. He's real. Uh, he, he's terribly important. 
but his role is to glorify and manifest the person of Christ. Therefore, he himself takes a secondary role in the work that he does. You ever see those trees where they have the lights in them? all over the place, lighting up the tree. And you ever see they're, they're kind of in a cone, if you ever look at them. The light is very deeply recessed in this cone. Well, that's so you don't look at the light. You, you look at the effects of the light as it spreads out and manifests the beautiful branches of the tree. That's what the Spirit does for us. We, we, we look at him, we pay attention to him, but our focus is on what he is pointing us to. And that is the person of Christ. And we certainly recognize him for that and adore him for that and worship him for that. But it's projecting us to the person of Christ. So there, it, it's reasonable that there's no specific passages that say worship the Spirit. Now, he's there in places where that indicate that he is the object of worship. For example, we have the, uh, the Trinitarian formulas where the Father, Son, and the Spirit are all used together in one place. Uh, the baptismal formula, that would imply that the Spirit is, in some sense, an object of worship along with the Father, Son, and the Spirit. But just a passage that says, Worship the Spirit, as it says it about Christ, is simply not there, but it's understandable why. And it's not a, a subtraction or a hindrance to us acknowledging his deity. Any questions or comments about that? Okay. Now, what does the Spirit do? What is his work? What is his role? Well, we've kind of covered that already. Uh, basically, his role is to reveal God to us. Reveal Christ to us. Uh, Romans 4, uh, 5, 4. Uh, not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been shed abroad or poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. So what is the Spirit doing here? He's taking God's love, and he's pouring it out within our hearts uh, to give us hope. Now, who can pour out God's love in a way uh, that God can't? Well, God can. Well, only God himself uh, has access to that love to pour it out in the way it needs to be poured out. So this is, a, to me, not only an evidence of, of the Spirit's work, but it, it's a sign that he is God himself. Who can take God's love and give it away? Can an angel do that? Well, okay, God's going to give me a little bit of his love, and I'm going to share it among the people. Now, only God himself can take his love and distribute it among the hearts of the people of God. Of Romans 8, So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. If you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But the Spirit is putting to death the deeds of the body, and you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery, leading to fear again. But you have received the Spirit, and in most of your Bibles, that Spirit is lowercase. But as Fee argues in his book, it should be uppercase. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit of adoption testifies that we are the children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified with him. And the part here that, that, that's amazing is uh, where he's in us, 
and such a deep sense that we cry, Abba, Father. He shows us our utter and complete dependence upon God to where we simply cry out as a child would cry out to his father in need, Abba, Father. Uh, who gives us that type of heart? Who reveals the Father to us in such a way that we're utterly dependent upon him as a child, a helpless child is before his earthly father? Well, Paul says it is the spirit of adoption who does that, who reveals God to us in that way. So it's a wonderful passage about how the Spirit just manifests God to us in such a delightful, such a wonderful way. And who can do that other than God himself? I think what Paul is describing here are works that only God himself can do. And the Spirit has access to those deep things of God, those inner recesses of God's heart that, that no other creature can go. And he takes those from God and then brings them and gives them to his people so that they might love God and cry, Abba, Father. I love that phrase where Paul is praying for the uh, Thessalonians where he says that, that may God the Father take, the, uh, take his love and, and pour it out among you. And the word he uses there for pour out is a, a, a compound uh, of prepositions that over, abundant, uh, abounding, overflowing towards you. The picture here is of a, uh, you're sitting there in a, uh, a restaurant and you've got a glass of water and it's a little bit empty and the waiter comes to fill it and he starts filling the glass and it overflows over the glass and then it overflows across the table and, and pours down the table and starts running out into the street and he just keeps pouring and pouring and pouring. That's the idea that Paul has here of the, of the Spirit just pouring out his love upon the people of God so that we overflow and abound in his love. And it's towards one another and those outside the church as well, he says there. So again, a great delightful work of the Spirit of taking who God is uh, what he's done, uh, his nature and character, and revealing it to the people of God in a way that only God himself can do. That, to me, is one of the, the most powerful demonstrations uh, of the Spirit's deity, that he is actually God. Any questions or comments before we... One more point before we go into the next section here. Um, yeah, this... I want to look at this real quick. This is a quote by Calvin, and... Uh, from his institutes, and what's interesting is where this appears here, and uh, I think it just very well summarizes what I'm trying to say here. A little bit wordy, but we'll, we'll walk through it here in a second. But what, what Calvin has done in his institutes up till this, this is the beginning of the third book, is he's explained uh, something about the knowledge of God. He's explained all the things that Christ has done for the people of God, all the, the death, uh, the sacrifice he made, the righteousness, the sanctification. Think of every work that you could possibly dream of that is described in the Bible uh, that he does for us. Calvin explicitly outlines and states for us in very eloquent, beautiful ways. And then he gets to chapter 3, and he's making a point, well, well, how do we receive these gifts? If Christ did all this, uh, and yet there are people that remain outside of that, never receive that. How is it that we as his people receive those blessings? Because they, they remain outside of us until something happens. And he's describing what brings them to us. He says this, We must now see that the way we become possessed of the blessings which God has bestowed on us is only begotten, bestowed on us is only begotten Son, not for private use, but to enrich the poor and needy. So God has done these things through Christ, not just for some private purpose to keep it, in it to himself. He's done it for poor and needy people. And the first thing to be attended to 
is that as long as we are without Christ and separated from Him, nothing which He suffered and did for the salvation of the human race is the least benefit to us. So that there's a separation between us and Christ. Yeah, he did all these wonderful things, but until they become ours, there's no benefit to us. He says to communicate to us these blessings, not to bring them to us, which He received from the Father, He must become ours and dwell in us. That's Christ. And though it is true that we obtain this by faith, yet since we see that all do not indiscriminately embrace the offer of Christ, which is made by the gospel, the very nature of the case teaches us to ascend higher, to inquire into the secret efficacy of the Spirit, to which is owning that we enjoy Christ and all of His blessings. That's kind of wordy here, but what he's saying, it is the Spirit, the work of the Spirit, the secret work of the Spirit, that links, that makes that bond between Christ and us so that we receive all of the blessings that Christ has brought. We, we hear about uh, being, we are the body of Christ. Well, how are we the body of Christ? What unites us to Christ? Well, it, it's the Spirit that unites us to Him. Uh, he is our head. We are members of each other. It is the Spirit that unites us and makes us one. And Calvin is saying here is that it is His work that brings those blessings to the people of God. Any questions or comments about that? Now, the last thing we're going to look at is that we've seen the outer works of Christ. Let's take a look at the, that, those inner works, what we looked at last week. The, um, we're just going to mention this. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time on it. Okay, see, here we go. Uh, opera ad intro. We saw that the work between, uh, this is all the work that goes on between the members of the Trinity, not outward, but in amongst themselves. We saw that the work that the Father does towards the Son is begetting. Again, we're going to leave that as just a big blank slate right now. We admit that the Bible teaches it, but as far as knowing uh, very deeply what it is, we simply don't know. But what is the work that the Father and the Son do towards the Spirit? And theologians have described that as proceeding. The Spirit proceeds from the Father and from the Son. And we see this in our confessions as well. And labeling is quite the way to you know, the Those we went through and saw how the creeds used the phrase begotten all through them. Hmm. Okay. Which Looks like you're trying to find it? Yeah, I think I may have sent the wrong one. Um, they had a, a bunch of about five or six slides after this. Okay, let me see if I can find it real quick. Is that it? Yeah, right there. Okay, yeah, perfect. Okay, so here's the uh, Nicene Creed. I believe the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, that, actually this is the Athanasian Creed, uh, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. So there's the Holy Spirit saying he proceeds from the Father and the Son. Uh, this is the Nicene Creed. Father was neither made nor created nor begotten. The Son was neither made nor created, but was alone begotten of the Father. So there's that language of begottenness again. Now the Spirit says, was neither made nor created, but is proceeding from the Father and the Son. There is, there is one Father, not three fathers, one Son, not three sons, one Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits. And here are some of the latter confessions. Uh, the top one is the Westminster Confession. 
In the unity of God, there are three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. There's that word proceeding again. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Ghost eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. So this, this language of proceeding came from what we call the Catholic uh, creeds or uh, councils that were finished up about the 5th or 6th century, all the way into the Westminster Confession, which was done in the 16th century. Uh, about a thousand years that this language is still being used to describe uh, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Uh, this is the uh, Savoy Declaration. Remember, this was the congregational uh, counterpart to the Westminster Confession. The unity of God, the Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Ghost eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son, which doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all communion with God and comfort, depend, comfortable dependence upon Him. Again, just notice the London Baptist Confession, the same thing. Uh, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son, all infinite without beginning, therefore but one God, uh, and is not to be divided in nature and being, but distinguished by several particular relative properties and personal relations, which doctrine of the Trinity and that statement about the, uh, the basis of communion and dependence upon God. So there's this language that is just as clear and just as, as real as the language of begottenness talking about the spirit with the idea of him proceeding. Now, what does that proceeding mean? It's anybody's guess. We know begotten has the idea of, of producing a son, somebody like yourself, but as far as proceeding, uh, there's really no description to it at all. The one place we get it from is uh, John 15 through 16, where it says uh, the Spirit does proceed from the Father, and the word there is a kind of an odd word to use. It's not the word a preposition ek, which would be coming out from. It excuse me, really does mean uh, the idea of proceeding. Uh, but as far as, as what it is in any depth, it's just a mystery. It's just there. It, it's something that, that happens within a trinity that we really don't know anything about. But it was something that was important to our forefathers. Uh, in fact, it was so important that notice how all of our confessions, the latter confessions, say a proceeding from the Father and the Son. Uh, you ever hear of, if you look at the older confessions, uh, yeah, they actually say proceeding from the Father and the Son, too. Okay, so, um, anyway, what happened in the church later was that this idea of proceeding was um, taken only to apply to the Father by the West Eastern Church, uh, Orthodox Church, and the uh, proceeding from the Father and Son was taken by the Western Church, and it's the confluence that it actually split the church into the Western Church and the Eastern Church, the uh, philology, uh controversy. So we may not think it's important, but they certainly did. Whether it proceeded from the Father, alone or proceeded from the Father and the Son was, was pretty much the straw that broke the camel's back that separated the Eastern and the Western churches and still to this day do. So uh, again, we're not going to speculate about it. It's just there. Uh, the scripture seems to speak of it as happening, but as far as diving into it and saying, okay, it means precisely this, we just simply don't know. We have no idea. And to go beyond uh, the scriptures at this point, I think would be uh, rather dangerous and incorrect.
Uh, any questions or comments? That's pretty much all I had for today. Any questions or comments? I thought this was going to go a little longer, but we kind of went through it quickly. Once, twice. Okay, well, thank you for your attention. I want to uh, a little bit shout out questions. Feel free to come up and talk to me afterwards. Uh, if not, we'll have a word of prayer and be dismissed to Bigger. Father, we thank you for the time we've had together. Thank you for the work that you've shown us that you, your spirit does. We pray, Father, you'd help us to rely more and more upon him, Father. We would see him uh, not as some hidden member of the Trinity, but one who is there, uh, who has a, a, a secondary role of revealing the person and nature of Christ, but one who is equally as important uh, as Christ is himself. For without the spirit, all that Christ does would be far from us, Father. It would be done simply for uh, private reasons, and we would receive none of his benefits. So we do bless you for your spirit. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for the work you do among us, and pray you do it uh, more so. Make us stronger, make us more obedient, make us more loving, uh, make us more hopeful, and, and give us the strength that we need to, to overcome our sin and the temptation that besets us, and transform us into the image of our, our beloved Savior. In whose name we pray, amen.